clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 26th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Chairman and CEO of Vanguard, Tim J. Buckley. If you're unable to stay with us for the entire duration of today's event, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good morning to our colleagues at Rockefeller Capital Management, to our clients and other friends of Rockefeller who are here for our 26th in this special client series that we began uh, over a year ago. It's my great pleasure uh, to introduce and have with us today, Tim Buckley, the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Vanguard. Tim has been at Vanguard now for 30 years, and he's had a tremendous run over that time and is a big part of the phenomenal success that Vanguard has experienced over the last three or four decades. Uh, in addition to uh, a number of other positions, he's been the Chief Information Officer at Vanguard. He's headed the Retail Investor Group. He was the Chief Investment Officer, and now he's the Chief Executive Officer. So talk about putting a stamp on a company. Uh, Tim uh, does a number of things outside of Vanguard, as you'd expect, including chairman of the board of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for six years. He's Harvard educated, which we will not hold against him today, both the college and the business school, uh, but that's all we're gonna say about Harvard. Uh, I know Mr. Brennan's listening and he's saying, no, wait, let's bring Harvard Business School back into it, but we're gonna stick with that. Uh, Tim, it's uh, great to have you here today. Uh, good morning and thanks again for being part of our client series. Greg, yeah, I'm thrilled to join you and uh, thanks for making the time. I'm excited to uh, have a conversation with so many of your clients and with your team. So uh, looking forward to getting into it. That's great. Well, we can jump right into it because there's so much that uh, our clients and, and the team can benefit uh, given uh, you know, the role that Vanguard, the massive role that Vanguard plays, frankly, probably, a, a, you know, a group of two now at the top of the asset management industry, Vanguard and BlackRock, in terms of reach and impact on everything that you do. So, Tim, maybe we can start there, given the, the, the fantastic success of Vanguard, the Vanguard story, which is a unique story in so many ways, uh, with characteristics that no other firm has, starting with its unique corporate structure, its singular focus, emphasis on low cost, frankly, having changed the asset management industry uh, in so many ways over time. Let's let's hear from somebody who's been there for three decades and been part of uh, a lot of these key decisions on the Vanguard story. Hey, Greg, thanks. And it, it certainly doesn't feel like three decades, but uh, you total it up, it's three decades. And um, most of your clients would, would, would know the Vanguard name now. Um, that wasn't the case when I joined. Um, my friends thought I was joining either an airline or a healthcare company at the time, but those times uh, certainly changed. And a lot of it is because of the, the certain differentiating characteristics of Vanguard. So if people would humor me, I'll give you a little story behind the scenes. You mentioned the singular focus. Vanguard exists for one reason. Give our clients the best chance for investment success. And we have a simple formula for doing that. Make sure that you have best, the best performing funds and ETFs, wrap them with trusted advice and perspectives and deliver that on a world-class client experience. Now, Greg, that sounds like every other company is gonna say, hey, we're gonna have funds that outperform and we're gonna put the client first in everything we do. But we have an incredible competitive advantage. We have to put the client first. We, we don't have another choice Greg, you mentioned our structure. We are actually owned by our clients, nobody else. So our competitors, they might be owned by public shareholders, by private equity, maybe a, a private family. So they have to figure out, well, how much can I make from the clients and then provide to those outside shareholders? We simply have our clients to serve. So we're, we are a very profitable company, just like other firms out there, but we return 100% of those distributed profits right back to our clients in the form of lower expenses. That, that is an incredible advantage. And you see it in a few places. People, how's Vanguard 
keep costs so low? Why are expense ratios so low? It's because of this structure. So if you run a portfolio of Vanguard, so you use a Vanguard active funds, ETFs, traditional, um, traditional funds, you have a diversified portfolio, it's gonna cost you about eight basis points, 0.08% to run that portfolio. That's 85% less than you're gonna find out in the marketplace. That's a huge advantage and it allows us, well, our clients get to keep more of their return. Greg, there's another advantage that comes with that, especially in active management. If you only have an eight basis point hurdle, right? Every active manager out there has to make up their expenses. We know that in indexing, like, hey, you want low expenses because you're trying to give the market return. In active management, you're trying to get alpha, but you don't want expenses to eat away at that alpha. Well, having low expenses means, say in our fixed income group, like they have a huge advantage. They have this advantage that they can go out and they can take advantage of opportunities that other managers would pass by. So think of it as, um, Think of it as money scattered around a highway. That in the center of the highway, there are these big bills. On the side of the highway, there's a lot of loose change. The competitors with high expense ratios, they run right by the loose change. They say, it's not worth picking up. And they have to go out into traffic to pick up the big bills and take a lot of risk. Our guys, well, our team looks and sees all that, all those opportunities on the side of the highway and mile after mile, they just keep picking them up small chances for alpha, small opportunities, and they compound that over time into big excess return. The other advantage it gives you is you don't have to take risk when it's not worth it. So 2019 coming into 2020, our fixed income team pulled in risk significantly. And it wasn't because we saw a pandemic coming. It was because it was just getting the rewards were getting tight. It wasn't worth it. That made sure that we had plenty of dry powder when the markets got dislocated in, in 2020. And our fixed income team, our active teams, seen our performance of their benchmarks, flagship funds from 150, 500, 1,000 basis points, depending on the fund. So there's a huge advantage to our structure, putting clients first, the only thing we can do, keeping costs low, then echoes into investment management, allows you to manage money in a different way. And it's, it's a formula that's worked, uh, Greg, through the years. Um, and it, at the scale we have now, it allows us to do a lot. So I could keep go talking about Vanguard, but I'm sure your, uh, your clients would love to hear, hear more than just the, uh, the advantages of Vanguard. Well, you know, one of this, it's a fantastic story though, uh, Tim, and, and, and worth, uh, you know, spending the time on, because I think, first of all, even for a lot of your clients, I'm not sure how clearly understood the structure is. They, they see the effect. Vanguard's had a tremendous impact on the industry. And that's one thing that maybe we can we can uh, close it out with that. The the uh, the fact that Vanguard is so uh, focused on expenses and and you know emanating from this unique structure where the client actually clients actually own the company, but you have had a tremendous impact on the rest of the industry along the way here. Uh, is that something that uh, you know within Vanguard you you're aware of that right? I mean when when you get to you know, seven and a half trillion dollars, and it's just BlackRock ahead of you in terms of size. When you do something, it, it, it has an impact on the industry and you have multiple times, you know, fees are probably lower everywhere because of Vanguard, isn't that fair? We hope that people call that the Vanguard effect and, and you see it in, in reality. Um, like we were pioneers in indexing. When I arrived at Vanguard, you, you know, people loved hanging the old posters, people that, that were made that indexing is un-American and that was like bulletin board material. That why would you want the average return year after year? Um, and so we stuck it out and industry assets in indexing back then were about 1% when I joined Vanguard. So we've seen that change through time and we've helped push that message. In fact, we were the drivers of that message. Other people have come along to indexing. Great to see. Um, the price competition, Greg, isn't exactly what I'd want it to be. Where it happens, where people have lowered their price is where Vanguard exists. So wherever we exist, people bring their the price of their ETFs or their index funds right down to Vanguard. They'll even say, hey, we're gonna make sure we're below Vanguard. We'll have a, we'll, we'll have a loss leader of some sort. That is what, what we're looking for is expenses overall coming down in the industry. 
And because they haven't come down, there are other areas like active management needs to come down more. Um, if it's ever going to outperform the market, it, the expenses there have to come down. And we could get into that more. But um, I think we're just getting started in terms of making sure the shareholder keeps more of their return. Where Vanguard is, you see that healthy competition. Where Vanguard isn't, the fees are still just too high. Yeah. Well, let's go to a, a, a spot where Vanguard actually is and, and supports that uh, not everybody uh, understands given this, the spectacular success with indexing and now ETFs, and that's advice. Uh, Vanguard believes in advice in, in a lot of cases. Uh, and, and in fact, um, you know, returns says Vanguard sees them are driven, yes, by low cost, but also by ensuring the right behavior of clients, tax efficiency, making sure clients aren't doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, which left to their, their own devices, a lot of human beings will, you know, see something happening and jump on the bandwagon later, see a, 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 an event like last March and say, let me get out. Uh, so the value of advice is something that that is actually uh, a, a core tenant of what Vanguard argues for in a lot of cases. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, great. It comes down to a client success is determined by the funds they use and the advice they get. And the quality of that advice matters. Um, you know, and, and people, investors often have um, the wrong idea of what proper advice would be or what good advice is. And Greg, if I, I won't put you on the spot, but I'm sure when the market went down, a few clients might have called, called up and said, wait, how, how, I just lost money. How is it that I just lost money? And advice isn't about, did you get into Bitcoin early? Did you find the, were you in EV vehicles before everyone else discovered them? Did, so did you get the hot trend? Did you keep me protected in the downturn so I didn't lose money? That's, if, if you found the advisor that can do that, well then either you found that rare, rare person that can see the future, or you found someone who's more lucky than than good. Because at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff is that marking timing element that, that just, it's, it isn't worth it. Where we see advice, um, the value of it is there's alpha to an advisor themselves. And so if you think about the Rockefeller advisors, like where do they add the alpha? Well, we've looked through decades of investor behavior and this includes advisors, okay? So I'll throw those into the group, Greg. And if you look at their behavior, they usually, what happens is people actually destroy return in trying to seek enhanced return. So when people say the market's gonna give you 10% and they say, okay, well, you know what? I wanna outperform the competition. I'm gonna find the hot asset class and they'll move to that. They'll be pro-cyclical. They'll move into growth right at the end of a growth um, run or move into tech right at the end of a tech. They're late to the party and they stay too long. And what happens is they, instead of taking a 10% return and making it a 13, they make it actually a 7% return. So we actually see that most advisors actually destroy about 300 basis points of return. And I'll break down where they do that. They do that by doing that first thing you, you talked about is discipline. They chase those returns, right? They, they chase the hot asset class um, and they're too late to it that destroys about 150 basis points a year. So 1.5% a year in returns. The next one is they don't care about cost. All else being equal, right? Costs of what you, what you pay and the turnover of fund is usually the best predictor of future performance. So they tend to overpay by about 40 basis points for, for the exposure that they're getting. The final one, and I know this, the value that Rockefeller provides is this is the one where you guys provide a ton of value beyond the discipline of investing is caring about taxes. So many advisors are thinking about taxes after the fact, and they'll destroy 150 to 200 basis points a year. And they're not thinking about tax loss harvesting, about location, the optimal drawdown strategy. So if they don't think about those things, they're destroying, they're destroying value along the way. So you want an advisor who is staying disciplined, not panicking, not chasing return, keeping your costs low, really thinking hard about taxes, and then 
look, if they can rebalance regularly and into a storm, that's even more. That's keeping risk constant, taking advantage of an opportunity. There's added benefit there. And that's where we see so much value. Yeah. You know, Tim, uh, it's a uh, uh, it, it's a perfect setup for what we're doing at Rockefeller Capital Management, and the phrase I've been using is the elite advisors that we've uh, we've recruited and we're putting in place, because they're they're used to dealing because they've been in the business working with these clients for a long time. They're focused on these high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. They understand taxes. They understand discipline. They understand the you know the value of uh, of a diversified approach. Uh, they were the ones last March saying, don't panic. We've got a long-term plan in place. Uh, they're the ones looking at uh, taxes, also generational planning. We do a lot of work with uh, clients on a generational basis. And, and part of what we're putting in place, uh, the, the core of the strategy is making sure that the advisors uh, are supported with all the tools so that they don't, they're not just doing investments, they're doing tax, they're doing generational. So we have family office services working alongside our advisors. We've got a a disciplined uh, investment platform where we look at appropriate alternatives and even directs that that our clients can um, can uh, utilize. Uh, and and it's exactly what you said. There's so many advisors that don't do that. We think we've got a differentiated space in the market here, providing holistic advice to clients that takes advantage of all the things you just ran through and delivers the the uh, you know the market return and then some. On a, on a smart basis for those clients. So um, your skepticism we share, which is why we're very careful about which advisors and uh, are here and the, and the advice that they're giving. And Greg, I would say that you guys are, if we think about the future of advice, you guys are gonna be in the winner's circle there from what you just described. Because we look at this and this, your clients know that the, the pandemic here is, is, you've heard this expression, has brought the future forward. So we're all changing how we interact. So this, this, this format right here, using Teams, a Zoom-friendly world, whatever term you want to use, you're changing your interactions with clients and clients are embracing it, right? They're embracing it. And when you look at, you may not want to like do the family gathering this way or catch up with friends. You, you might be looking at, hey, let's get out and spend some personal time. But when we look at business interactions, how things will change going into the future, um, virtual is freeing up people's time. They find it more convenient. Advise clients, advise clients are, they're coming out and saying, uh, there's a BCG study that said 90% of advised clients find this format as good as, if not better than face-to-face. 30% don't wanna go back. So that tells you there's a different convenience and time feature here. Greg, you mentioned other things taking advantage of tools, advice tech. So we put hundreds of millions of dollars a year into advice technology. And the idea is to automate the rote tasks, rebalancing the portfolio, doing risk profiling, things that take up time. Also to provide more robust answers. So we have a database client data on millions of clients. We can use that and say, okay, well, emergency cash needs what are they for someone who's a doctor versus someone in financial services of this risk profile? What about healthcare needs for people of this risk profile? They, what, would, what should they be? What about tax-optimized retirement income? We can build those on an AI platform. We build those tools. Firms like Rockefeller can use those tools. So you will have tools you can use that what does that mean then? You've got more, a more robust answer and you've got a more, con, more convenience to your clients and your advisors have more time. So this is the key differentiating element. So what do they do with that time? Greg, you just described it, right? They, they, they spend more time with their clients. They understand their clients' personal needs. Do they have a, a grandchild that's going to need an account for special needs going forward? Are they dreaming to open up a bike shop when they retire? They want a gift, but still have a safety net for, the, for their kids. Like everybody has, different needs, advice will be differentiated in the future, less on is someone a good portfolio manager, much more on their creativity and empathy around solutions and understanding what their clients are trying to get done. You embrace technology, not to replace you, but to free up your time so you can spend more time in those uniquely human tasks of getting to know your clients and customizing your solutions for them. And Greg, that's exactly what you just described Rockefeller doing. 
Uh, Tim, it's spot on. It, it, and we're not, uh, for the audience, this was not hand in glove and, and prepped. It's exactly what our advisors do with their clients. Uh, and that, that kind of differentiation and tailored approach to the individual needs because they're dug in, they understand it. And actually the, the technology, you and I have had this conversation, the technology used freeing up time and allowing them to be more efficient. We've invested in first-class technology across the landscape and we continue to. And actually we hear from our advisors, the quality of the technology team that we have here and the constant uh, work they're doing to make it easier and easier to work with clients, to interface with clients, to understand their, their, their specific needs. So uh, spot on. Tim, let, let's look forward a little bit. Uh, and this gets into our, our mutual uh, friend, Jack Brennan, the, the, uh, the interactions going forward on advice. Uh, and Jack's book, which uh, I have a copy of, and I know you do more straight talk on investing, uh, which he wrote uh, for the first time 20 years ago, and he just updated uh, and is now uh, out and available. Um, it's amazing how much he wrote 20 years ago that was salient today, although he did need to update it and he said that. Um, but what will, when, when Jack rewrites it again or, or, or edits it again in 20 years, what, what's gonna change 20 years from now? How, how are things gonna change as we move forward here? Hey, great, yeah, look, it, well, first it's a, yeah, everyone should know that um, Greg and I endorsed it on the back. We believe so much in this book. Um, so people know Jack is the reason why I ended up at Vanguard, an incredible mentor of mine, um, a, a great friend, um, and was my boss for years. Uh, you know, and what, if you know Jack, Greg, fair enough to say he's candid, so you're going to know exactly what he thinks and how you should invest, but a brilliant guy all the same. And in that book, you have a bunch of fact-based lessons. I mean, ones that I repeat to people all the time, like you get a raise, pay yourself first, putting in an account for yourself. Don't change your standard of living yet. You're already happy. Put some in an account for yourself. Things like live below your means. They're not throwaway comments. They work through time. The lessons in that book, like they stay, the stories change. And one of the sad things, Greg, when I was rereading the book and you know, Jack gave us a copy and I got to proof the original one. And it was the dot-com era, and it was post.com, the tech wreck. And I'm reading through it, and I'm like, oh, gosh, history is not the old Mark Twain. History may, history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. The <laughs> lessons are the same in there. And I think for your clients, one of my favorite ones, and I think will always be there, is tune out the noise. Um, don't tune us out here, but tune out the noise. Like, so many people are like – turn on CNBC, going to their different investment forums, trying to figure out what's going to happen with inflation over the next couple of quarters, right? What's the Fed going to do? Like, one of our best investors, he's thinking out 10, 20 years. He said, I don't, you could tell me, I don't care, right? Unless you're a, port, a fixed income portfolio manager, like, why are you paying this close attention to the market? Jack's advice on that, Greg, you've heard it before, is tune it out. When he stepped down at Vanguard, he stopped checking his accounts all the time. I mean, he's, and the reason being, every time you check your accounts, every time you tune into the financial news, you're tempted to do something. You're tempted to break that discipline. The, the best discipline you can have, stay the course. So Greg, I'll put a, a plug in for the, the Vanguard way of investing. Staying the course. Uh, we go back a year ago, there's panic in the markets. Uh, markets are way down. 99.6% of our clients did not panic. Only 0.4% of them actually went to cash or all bonds in cash. They stayed the course. The difference is a trillion dollars in value. They're a trillion dollars better off by tuning out the noise and staying the course. So you ask me like, what's the big message that will still be there? It should be here today with all, there's a lot of froth going on, tune out that noise. You tuned it out a year ago, tune out the froth now, tune it out 20 years from now too. Just stay the course. 100%, and for everybody on the call, Jack Brennan is also the lead director at Rockefeller Capital Management uh, and is, um, Tim said, uh, is, is one of the legends in the investing business. And uh, so, so Greg, he's now your boss. So you get all the direct feedback. I get a lot of direct feedback. <laughs> Rockefeller better every day. I agree with both of those things. Um, the, um, uh, let's, let's shift to, uh, 
to the the markets for, for a little bit, Tim. Uh, uh, given the breadth of uh, of what you're responsible for, people uh, do want to hear your views. So uh, it's clearly a robust economic environment now. And in fact, one of the things I've been saying, uh, given the liquidity of individuals uh, with savings rates having gone up in the last 12 months and a trillion nine stimulus that's just working its way through the system, Federal Reserve posture, uh, fiscal, uh, you know, I mentioned the trillion nine, but more fiscal coming, that we've got a, a slingshot here on the economic side, and, and you could see double-digit GDP growth in the second half of the year. Uh, how do you see the economic outlook, markets, Fed, inflation, you know, 22, 23? And you get asked about this all the time. And uh, again, if you're uh, CEO of a business with $7.5 trillion in assets, even though you do counsel your clients, as our advisors do, don't panic. Uh, and and uh, uh, don't overreact in the near term. How how do you see uh, all of this coming together in the next six months and then the next couple of years? Hey, Greg, it, uh, it it is certainly a dynamic time, and that, that's an understatement. Um, it is so different than a year ago. Um, I think we'll all take that light at the end of the tunnel or whatever expression coming out of the woods, whatever it is, um, we'll take where we are. And you described it appropriately. We used to describe that the economy has been uh, had, was put in a medically induced coma, and it's come out of that. And it's a little groggy to start, but it is taking off now. It was a little groggy to take off. It's 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 taking off, and it's about a quarter ahead of where we would have thought it would have been at this point. I mean, we're almost back to GDP-wise where where we dropped off. So we've almost made it all back. Um, you mentioned the growth rates, growth rates that we have not seen in decades. So that is the, the, the good news. The bad news is we started at a low level. The good news is that growth is, is coming firing back and there's still more in there. Um, you did mention the different types of infrastructure, whether it's social or physical or environmental infrastructure. We don't know what will get passed, but let's say you know, half of it gets passed. Is that worth, I don't know, half a percent of GDP growth for the next few years? Um, if you think about the service economy, think about the rest of the growth that's left in the service economy, that whether it's entertainment, whether it's restaurants and travel, that there's still fuel in that tank for growth to come from there. So you get there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic about economic growth. But then you go and you hang out, and I hang out a lot with the fixed income team here. Um, and when they see a lot of growth, they start thinking, okay, like, fiscal spending, a lot of growth, um, easy monetary inflation. So clients are hearing a lot more news about potential inflation out there. And so, you know, should they be worried about inflation? I think it matters if you're a portfolio manager versus you're investing for 20 years. And for your clients, this is gonna be transitory, probably not worth stressing out about. That there's reasons to believe that we're going to have inflation in the short run and the fed may even want even wants that inflation but you see you, i already mentioned you know the fiscal spending you're going to you have easy monetary policy we all feel the supply shocks right we read the stories about ships that can't be unloaded containers in the wrong spot etc cetera, etc cetera. but we we feel those supply shocks um, there's labor imbalances as people come back into the, into the economy. So reasons for short-term inflation. But the reason why I would say, hey, this is a transitory thing on inflation, not a long-term concern. You have to think of some of the elements. Is that, Greg, is that fiscal spending, is it permanent, right? Are we going to continue to spend this way? Because if you're going to continue to spend this way, then that may change expectations and Inflation's all about expectations in so many ways. Um, do, you, uh, do you think those supply shocks will continue? We don't. I think you're going to see a lot of them came from consumption pattern changes. Like people didn't go to restaurants, but they shopped on Amazon. They weren't going to the movies, but they were buying goods that had to be shipped to the U.S. So the supply shock changes should make their way out of the system as people consume more soft goods, if they consume more entertainment and travel, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that when you think about inflation, what undermines inflation each and every year is technology. I think about technological innovation. 
when every year we get more capabilities, more functionality for every dollar we spend around technology. And for everything that's sold, technology is a bigger part of that good. So technology will continue to undermine. Globalization, like, unless you think globalization is gonna reverse and go back the other way, globalization gives you plenty of slack in the economy that should keep prices down. So there's many reasons to think, okay, inflation long-term should stay down. Do you do anything different with your portfolio? We'll say there's short-term inflation. This may not, you guys may not agree with this, Greg, but I would say like, don't don't try to play it. That's that's market timing. Like if you're saying, okay, well, I'll just buy a little bit of Bitcoin. That's my hedge or a little bit of gold. I don't know, like, do you know, like, did you get in early enough? Do you know when to get out? Because these are assets that if you're playing them for inflation, they're gonna go up and come back down. Um, why not just hold your equities? If the economy continues to grow and inflation sticks around, you'll benefit in your equities from that growth. And equity, the companies can still pass through that pricing. So even if I'm wrong, having the equity should protect you over the long run. So less of a risk there. Now, Greg, um, I did mention equities in there, so I think it would be, hey, I'm telling people to hold on to their equities, and I know a bunch of your clients are probably out there going, yeah, but at what price? Um, everyone's seen, uh, you know, we, we keep hitting highs, CC valuations, especially in the U.S. And look, prices, the, the valuations are high. Um, when we, we will, our team looks at equity valuations here, we use a, uh, a cyclically adjusted PE model, so a CAPE model. And then we compare where the, the current PE reading is to where a fair value would be if you adjusted it for prevailing interest rates. When we go through that calculation, we would tell you that US equities are one and a half standard deviations above fair value. That's expensive, but it's, it's, it's clumpy. It's not universal that way. There are other areas that if you look at value, you know, value stocks have been doing well this year, but value stocks have underperformed for so long. You look at the, the gap between growth and value, like value, we haven't seen a gap like this since 1999. So you have to go to the dot-com era and value did really well after that. You also look outside the US, international equities, like, they're what we'd call fairly valued. So Greg, we come back and say, this is the time for, this is really the time for people to have a globally diversified portfolio, not to get really concentrated saying, hey, you know, it's all about tech right now. Now, this is where you want that, that because valuations matter, you want to be diversified globally and, and you know, let it play out from there. So hopefully that wasn't too long of an answer, but it give you some insight of how we're thinking about it here at Vanguard. You know, and it sounds like, um, you know, a pretty balanced, um, uh, you know, upbeat perspective around, you know, major shifts not coming, even if we do have inflation, uh, you know, moving forward here, it, it'll go up and then and then come back. What about before we get off this rate policy? Well, the Fed, you know, the Fed's been pretty clear about um, uh, and as you said, I think they've been much more focused. This goes back to Bernanke and Yellen. I think they worried about what happened in Japan and the inability to get pricing power back in that economy. So the Fed uh, remains more focused on creating, seeing inflation, and they worried about deflation. Will they? Will we see a different rate cycle if we start to get inflation, even if it's something that uh, you know may not be more secular inflation, if if you will? Great. I, I think you just said it so well. I mean, the Fed has incredible credibility at controlling inflation. So much so, if we look at coming out of the, the, the global financial crisis, that it was tough to get inflation of, of 2%. Now they're having to go out to say, hey, we're going to tolerate it above 2%. But I think the credibility that you talk about is the reason why you, it doesn't run away is that they have the tools, the know-how, the knowledge to keep it in, in check. So it becomes, a, is it is it 2.5 for how long, 2.2? It, 
it doesn't take off because inflation is about expectations and the Fed has incredible credibility about controlling kind of that, that um, accelerating inflation and plenty of tools um, to take action. So I think they have the luxury of letting rates stay low, letting jobs come back and the economy can recover fully knowing that they have tools to control inflation if they really start to get worried about it. Great. Let's, uh, let's shift to a topic that uh, I know you're spending a lot of time on and is really near and dear to our hearts at Rockefeller, and that's ESG. Uh, and I wanted to get a sense of Vanguard's approach uh, from an investor standpoint because you have such a, a huge footprint uh, and you have these major changes in the world with uh, climate change and um, uh, the, the amount of capital and ideas and, you know, with the Biden administration's push around uh, uh, the, the industries they're supporting that come out of this in the, in the U.S. Um, what is Vanguard doing from an investor standpoint uh, around ESG and how do you see this playing over time? Yeah, Greg, you and I could probably spend the whole hour on this one. Um, as you know, this is where we've had a lot of meetings with global leaders, um, regulators, et cetera, on the role investment management can play here. Um, but I want to step back a little bit. Um, when we're talking about ESG, I'm going to I'll talk a little bit more about climate because that tends to be the focal point globally right now on on ESG. Um, and if you go through economic history, and uh, Greg, I know you know it well, but if we just go through economic history, it's punctuated. It's punctuated by periods of great innovation. Go back to think about the railroads or radio and TV, the PC, the internet, biotech. There's times of great innovation that they can change the path of growth for the global economy. These things like the internet has fundamentally redefined how we live. The railroads did it in the 1800s. So these things can change. They're disruptive. They create great growth, but they also create winners and losers. I think it's fair to say that climate could be one of those, Craig. You don't know until you have the hindsight, but if we are truly to arrest the warming of this planet, we're going to need great innovation. You know, you're going to need to be able, you'll have to build differently, use different materials. Transportation will have to be redefined. What we eat will have to change. All of these things, right down to how we produce power, which everyone thinks about, will have to change. And to do that, you need that innovation. Now, we already see some of it. We've already benefited from some of it. So, you know, it's, it's, someone just needs to say, you want to witness the innovation, drive a Tesla and have a Beyond Burger and gander out on a, a wind farm like the Alta Energy Center. Like, all these innovations exist today. Some of them have been very good investments. Right, and more will come. But here's where I want to put the caution in for your clients. That doing well with an innovation isn't simply about owning the theme. It isn't simply about let's just jump into it and I can blindly just if I buy climate, I'll do well. And it's similar to like you didn't want to just buy dot com, just like you didn't want to just buy the railroads that you know, you can actually end up disappointed there. That if too much capital flows into a finite number of ideas and you don't care about valuation going in, you could end up owning a great company like Cisco in 1999 that didn't have the returns for, dec for, for well after the tech wreck because you paid too much going in. And so we've signed, you asked about what, so what's the strategy to approach that in this time of disruption? Well, one is, you know, look, you're talking to Vanguard here, the whole idea of indexing is it's tough to pick the winners, so own all the whole market. And if I'll, I'll, I'll use that internet revolution, that if you in 1999 bought the market, you did better than buying a slice of technology. So you bought the whole market, you owned the Amazons and the Googles, etc. You also owned the Kmarts and the Toys R Uses, but hey, you know what? Amazon and Google made made up more than that. So you ended up benefiting. There's always the market strategy. The next one I would say though is, hey, active. And you might find that odd, but I've mentioned a few times, we're big active, we're 1.6 trillion in active management. We have active managers that outperform and the, 
they have actually 78% of them are outperformed right now over 10 years. So I'll, it's we believe wholeheartedly in active management. If you look at that, like why do they outperform? They look at the change, the trend, where technology will make a difference. And they select the companies that they believe will give you the best return. You may think, well, that's not the leading company, but actually it's gonna do well in the transition and it's at the right valuation. So they're making judgment within that. Now that can exist in a traditional equity fund with an active manager. If, if you look to our managers and you talk to a, whether it's a Wellington or a prime cap, Bailey Gifford, there isn't a one of them that doesn't consider climate as a factor. Or you can go to strategies that are about sustainable returns, or they look towards companies that will be sustainable. They'll look towards companies that will that will benefit from the transition, but they'll care about what they pay going in. So it's not a blind strategy. And so I'll come back to this, that what you wanna do is if you own the index, know that, hey, we're gonna, for a Vanguard or other indexers out there, they'll be trying to influence companies to address the material risk of climate. And it's like warning Kmart, the, the internet will matter, all right, and try to make the jump. Maybe you're successful, maybe you're not. Or go to the active managers who can allocate towards the positive change, that that will happen, or funds that are gonna to allocate towards that positive change, but actively care about valuation. What I worry about are those strategies that are those narrow ETFs that just take a bet on a slice of the market. That's not really kind of indexing as we know it. Indexing is owning the market. You own a really narrow slice, you're actually making a bet against the market. Now you're doing it without the judgment of that active manager. And so look, and I'll, I know you believe in this because we've had the chance to talk to, we do, we enter sub-advisory agreements a lot with active managers and we've had the chance to talk to your Rockefeller team. And um, it's an impressive group. Um, and Greg, what I respect about them is uh, they didn't just come upon this like, wow, look at the marketing cash flow opportunity. These guys have been doing it for years and they've been driving sustainable returns for years. So um, just to my compliments to your to your team at Rockefeller that uh, they've been all, they've been all over this and they've been doing it for a while. Thank you, Tim. And, uh, you know, part of what we're doing, and that was a very clear, as always, uh, perspective from Vanguard, where broad ETFs, but also active managers that are going after uh, you know the right companies over over a longer period of time. Part of what our team our team has been investing in ESG, and frankly, a lot of this is down to uh, the Rockefeller family, who uh, were were some of the pioneers in ESG investing, and actually uh, coined the phrase impact investing at Rockefeller Foundation way back in 2007, which was very early in this curve, as you know. Uh, so we've been at it a long time, but we've also built some things in, like this improvers concept, where we're focused on companies that are getting better on their on these benchmarks like climate as opposed to companies that might you know be be leaders today but you you can see more material change in a stock price from a company that's improving faster against the benchmarks that we look at so we, we are dug in on that uh, active side that you talked about um, uh, focused on uh, uh, trying to to identify the the, the, the kinds of returns we want to see for our clients over time Greg, I want to hit on that improvers bit a little bit too, because it, it is where a lot of the return will be. I look at um, one of our great portfolio managers, uh, Tom Levering at Wellington. He, he runs he, he runs our energy fund. And you usually think energy fund, well, that must be high carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. Traditionally, it would have been high hydrocarbons. Um, he advocated for adding utilities in there. And in that, he's actually able to invest in the companies and the utilities, et cetera, et cetera, that are leading the transition, that will benefit from having the infrastructure, that will benefit from actually being at the forefront of where energy prices will come down, where the technology will be, but being smart about the transition, even in a fund called an energy fund that traditionally would have just held kind of oil and natural gas companies, et cetera, et cetera. He will still own those, but he'll own the ones that are actually making the transition and return can still be had there as long as they're not blind to the transition that has to that has to go on. 
Spot on. Uh, we have this, the same perspective at this point. Uh, let's shift because we've got uh, the time flying. We've got some questions that I want to uh, weave in here and then a number of other topics I want to uh, do over the last 15 minutes. So one of the questions that came in, this comes out of the Vanguard dialogue and three decades, as you said, that went quickly. But what are some of your proudest moments over the tenure, your tenure at uh, Vanguard? Oh, well, you know, my proudest moments actually have a lot to do with um, the talent that we've developed here. So uh, we believe everyone knows a successful business depends on talent. Um, we believe in something, Greg, I'm going to call I'll term it exponential leadership. Like as good as you may be, Greg, you're only one person and your contributions are finite. But if you can actually mentor someone else and you can teach them what they know and they can build on on that and then teach other people, um, that is true power. And that is what I'd call exponential leadership. And uh, so my proudest moments are when I see those people that I've had a hand in mentoring do well. Um, and look, I, even on our senior team here at Vanguard, there's a number of people I, I uh, mentored from the day they started at Vanguard or early on, or they were chief of staff early on. And seeing them do well, um, Super proud of them, um, and that, that's an internal one. Um, I will give. I already gave you my proudest client moment, like a, a proud parent. Um, that number of I keep repeating. You'll hear it a lot from me. That only 0.4% of clients panicked. That is people following the Vanguard philosophy. So there, there's an internal one and external one. Hey, the philosophy works, and uh, the next generation is going to be better than the existing generation. That's great. Actually. Uh question I had for you that, that's a good follow-on, and then I'll go to some other questions that came in. Uh, advice you give to young people today, millennials, Generation Z, did the pandemic change that? Is it kind of the same, similar uh, to where it was uh, 12 months ago? But uh, what, what counsel do you give young people that are either looking to come in the business or maybe just looking to do something else, but come to you as the leader of, uh, of such an uh, incredible company? Greg, you and I both have have kids at that age where they're either in college or going to be coming out of school into the workforce. And you know, to them right now, I just talked to a, a group in, at Warden, and um, like they're going to be a more resilient bunch, um, more resilient than my generation, um, in in what they have gone through and embraced the virtual world. world. Um, but my advice to anybody joining the workforce tends to be the same. If you say one thing, what will make a difference? And um, if you know the author, Jim Collins, um, author, researcher, yeah. he's got this great line. He spend, says, spend more time being interested than interesting. More time being interested than interesting. Like if you, generations coming out now, you interview them, I interview them, and they nail the interview. I, I, I couldn't get a job today. No way. Like I, I couldn't nail an interview like people do uh, do today. And um, they're really interesting. Their resumes are great. You get to the end of the interview. What questions do you have for me? Whew. Nothing. Like really like nothing about the business, about the company. And they, they've spent so much time like presenting themselves. They haven't thought about their own curiosity. And so what I urge people to do is be curious. Like pursue that curiosity, ask a ton of questions. You mentioned Jack Brennan um, and uh, he gave me advice. He may not remember this on the my first day at Vanguard. And uh, I worked for our founder and he was probably making sure that I didn't mess that up. Um, but he also wanted to make sure that I took advantage of it. And he said, Tim, ask a lot of questions, just never the same question twice. So I didn't know any better. I wasn't very deferential. So I walked around the halls of Vanguard asking a ton of questions of our CIO, our CTO. I learned from some of the, some of the smartest people at Vanguard. And Greg, a pretty cool thing happened then. And I look back on it. The more questions I asked, the more interested people were in investing in my career because I cared about learning the business. And look, if you show an interest, if people come in, show an interest in the company, in the business, people will love to mentor them and bring them along. So you end up with great sponsors too. So um, stay curious, pursue it, be more interested than interesting. I think that's fantastic advice. And I, I append to that. I say, look, 
you know, young people today, they come into the workforce, they're in their 20s, they eat well, they exercise, uh, medicine is making such huge strides. You could work for 60 or 70 years and given that amount of time, as you said, be interested. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, in front of you, there's a lot of time to, you know, to check boxes and achieve things. You know, build, get those building blocks early on and, and uh, really make sure, you know, this was, uh, Steve Jobs was great on this, particularly after he was ill, that Stanford commencement speech, but so many quotes where he said, you know, find something where you're gonna make a mark. It's your, it's your only life. Be somewhere where you're, you, you're wake up and you're motivated and stimulated every day. It's part of what I constantly talk about, the culture we're trying to create a Rockefeller capital management, and we are, where people like to come to work. They like their jobs. They get responsibility. They matter. They know they matter. They're not just in a meeting. Uh, so I, it's great counsel. And, and, and You added something, have purpose. Right. I've been at Vanguard for 30 years because Vanguard's got a fabulous purpose, helping people retire better, put their kids through college, have a purpose you can believe in. And look, and that's what you talk about at Rockefeller, like having that purpose, working with great people. So, yeah, I echo that. Uh, a couple of uh, questions uh, came in on the macro side, uh, Tim. So just to cycle back a little, one of them uh, talks about, uh, and this is obviously getting a lot of attention now, but the surge in U.S. and worldwide deficit spending. Um, you know, will there be uh, a medium and long-term impact here? You know, uh, I would assume that the implication is maybe a, a, a negative impact, but what's the impact of all this deficit spending that's taking place in the world? Well, I think you especially look at the U.S. We're, we have this incredible luxury of, of being that reserve currency that in times of crisis, people want to hold the dollar. They, they come to the U.S. and that our rates actually go down in, in a time of crisis, so our debt gets cheaper to finance. Um, Greg, no one knows the answer to what's the tipping point. And a lot of it has to do with substitution. When does the U.S. debt get so large that people go, mm, all right, well, that's going to be tougher to pay off. You have to reward me with a higher rate because I could go over here. Is it going to be China? Is it some EU substitute? What will be the substitute for, for that treasury? And I think you have to think about eventually, you know, if maybe not in our careers, but down the road, it eventually happens. So the responsible thing to do is, is not to think, that the, the, the national debt can keep going up, but to, to put some discipline around, hey, there are times where you have to spend it up, like right now out of a crisis, but when you're not in a crisis, start paring it back down. To leave, just like in managing a portfolio, you want dry powder. You know you need to deficit spend in a crisis. In good times, we should be bringing it down so the next generation can continue. And I think it's just, it's a tough balance that we have to make. We have to make it as a country and and, and the legislators have to make it too. Yeah, and, and that leads to when, and you mentioned this in the, in, the, uh, in the rate conversation and the inflation conversation, globalization has been a depressant on, um, on uh, inflation, uh, certainly over the last 10 or 20 years. But given the rivalry and, and even friction now between the U.S. and China, you know, if it's here to stay, is that a serious threat to globalization? Greg, it, it may slow it down for the U.S., but remember that we're only one player in the world and China will continue to trade with others, will continue to, to grow with others. So, um, you know, you're seeing globalization slow down. What you're not seeing is it reverse. And I think you have to look at just the, the trend may slow uh, for a period of time, but is it truly going to reverse? Um, and there's a lot of things. If it slows down, you can work out IP protection, et cetera, et cetera, that it could start to pick up again. So um, we doubt that it will reverse. The rules may change and that will slow it down. Um, but uh, you know you can expect china will continue to grow people continue to ch uh, trade with china and for the us we just our rules may change in working with china uh, fair enough and i i think there's a lot in that um the uh let, let's shift to a, uh, another topic before we wrap up that uh, i know you spent a lot of time thinking about and in fact have influenced along the way vanguard the future of the asset management industry you gave me the statistic tim i, I had not heard it and it's an incredible statistic Excluding the market, active management is 60% smaller today than it was 10 years ago. So uh, where does it go from here? Uh, active management, uh, you know, can passive continue to grow? I mean, given the penetration into the total asset pool 
of passive to this point, it, 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 it's got to plateau and, and slow down. But, um, you know, what will that, that statistic look like in five and 10 years? And what has to change in the asset management industry and the active side in particular uh, going forward? Greg, and, e and ETFs especially aren't slowing down. Um, done this year over 250 billion in cash flow already this year. So that's more than all of last year um, combined. So um, you're going to see continued growth of the ETF. Think about it for advisors. It's, it's great beta exposure. It's low cost. It's tax efficient at a time when taxes may be going up. So I don't think that the, the, the growth of ETFs is, is going to, to wane, but I do worry about active management. And, and so many people position as active versus passive. It isn't like passive is the market. I mean, when you buy a, a total stock market fund, you're getting the total stock market. No matter what an active manager does, you're getting the total stock market return. Active return is all about active managers, like as a whole, get the market return. They, if they're going to outperform, they actually have to grab that return. They have to steal return from somebody else. You have to outperform another active manager. And it used to be a lot easier decades ago when so many were amateurs, so many active, so many people in, in the market were just, they weren't professionals, they're amateurs. They didn't have the same information. They didn't have the Bloomberg terminal or the CFA. But, and so it's easy to capture alpha from say retail shareholders. That's been professionalized. And everyone's got a CFA, everyone's got a Bloomberg terminal, it's much more competitive. So alpha exists, but the distribution of it is tighter. And what's happened is that, well, like fees haven't come down. Managers have been greedy about keeping fees high. And so the result is if there is any alpha, it goes to the manager in high fees. So active management continues to underperform. And we fear like the baby's being thrown out with the bathwater that great active managers, I mentioned, look, our 10-year performance against benchmarks, right, asset weighted, we outperform by 113 basis points a year. But that doesn't get recognized because everyone is moving away from active management. There's real value there, Greg, for clients in active management. Um, and advisors should recognize that, that value for clients because you can compound that over time. It makes a big difference. So we hope pricing comes down at, on the active management side, and um, we all get to benefit from it. That's a, a great answer, and, and uh, I think uh, Vanguard being around is going to keep uh, keep pressure on that pricing. Now, I have a question for you that I definitely know you're not expecting, but uh, I'm uh, I'm going to enjoy your response. Uh, who will be the first twenty trillion dollar asset manager of BlackRock or Vanguard? I could have said ten, but it looks like they'll probably get to ten first. But uh, you know, I still like Vanguard's chances here. So twenty trillion. I, Greg, I, like, it doesn't really matter to us. Um, and I say that in all honesty, we, we never have an asset goal. We never have a revenue goal. Like, we'll leave that to the public companies to worry about that. Our goals are 100% around the client. So if you went and you want to see our scorecard and what we get paid on is do our funds actually outperform the competition or are our clients on, on, on track for their goals? Do we actually, our NPS, net promoter score, does it outpace all of our competitors? And then finally, do we actually return sufficient cost? Do we return sufficient money to our clients? I mentioned, hey, we're profitable like other people. What we do is we give it back to our clients in the form of lower expenses. Do we continue to do that? That's how we measure success. Whether we're first, second, third is more of a byproduct. Um, for our business model. And our clients get to determine that one, not us. That's a fantastic answer. And I know it's sincere. And, and frankly, that's in the DNA and that's really what Vanguard is. Uh, and that's why uh, this may have happened to you way back in 1991, Tim, but nobody thinks you work at an airline or uh, I, I forget what your other industry healthcare was. Healthcare company. It was, it was healthcare, yeah. yeah healthcare, exactly. It's not an airline or a healthcare company, and everybody's got that now. Well, listen, I just want to thank you for being here. That was fantastic. Uh, uh, the, uh, the breadth of insight across both macro and the industry. Uh, and uh, clearly Vanguard, uh, as it has been for many years, remains in great hands. So, Tim, thank you for being here today. My pleasure.
Um, and I will, I told you, I, I always close and, and hopefully our regular viewers, and I know there are many of them, know that uh, I uh, always uh, say goodbye to everybody uh, with the quotation first. Uh, and not surprisingly, given that um, he's a mentor to both Tim and to me, I'm going to quote uh, Jack Brennan uh, uh, as the, uh, the the final piece of this. Uh, and Jack has been um, described by somebody as uh, perpetually dissatisfied. Uh, and, and the genesis behind that, and Tim knows this and I know it is, he's just always pushing to make things better uh, and, and on it relentlessly every day. It, it ties in with that Lombardi quote that everybody knows I like so much around uh, perfection not being attainable, but if we chase it, we might just catch excellence. That defines Jack. And he said um, the following though, uh, which is um, uh, slightly different than that, but shows you the, the kind of culture that he and Tim and the team at Vanguard has built. Uh, Jack said, quote, the two most important keys to success are humility and discipline. And one of the reasons Vanguard is Vanguard today is because of those characteristics brought to bear every day by Jack and Tim and the leadership team at Vanguard. So thank you again, Tim Buckley, for being here. Uh, all the best to Vanguard uh, on its path going forward. And thank you to uh, all of our listeners, Rockefeller Capital Management colleagues, clients, and other friends of Rockefeller. Stay well uh, and enjoy uh, the reopening of the world here as it occurs uh, in all sorts of places. Take care.